At the start of his short story, The Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway tells the story of a father and son. The son's name is Francisco, or as he is called by his nickname, Paco. And I've learned that the name Paco is actually the most common nickname in the Spanish language. As the story went, it seems that there was a significant falling out between this father and son. The boy had done something. He had uh, messed up in some way. He he had pushed back against the family uh, rules and guidelines, perhaps. Maybe he just got into that stage of life where he thought he should be doing things by his own code. Or just perhaps he had in some way embarrassed the family. He had created some kind of difficulty for Uh, his father and his mother. He didn't want to take on responsibilities, maybe. You know how it goes in families. This is the story of our lives. But his father encounters him, approaches him, tries to deal with this issue in his life. And at one particular moment in the conversation, he is just filled with that rage that just comes up in us sometimes. And he spews out these hate-filled words towards his father. He tells his dad that he just doesn't need him, that he wants nothing to do with him, and in fact, he wishes he were dead. That particular night, terrible silence has filled the house, and and Paco goes to his room, and he stuffs some clothes into a duffel bag, and and he walks out the front door, slamming it behind him, and he goes down the family driveway and walks down the hill, and then begins the long walk on the road that leads to Madrid. And finally he disappears into the teeming city. In his mind, forever, to be going it on his own. Although the relationship between the the father and the son is is quite broken now, and the boy is out of sight. He is not out of the father's mind. The father's heart is still bonded to this boy. He's he's thinking about him all of the time, and through his mind races these thoughts. What what if my boy is sick? What, What if he's lying injured someplace? What if he's fallen into dangerous company? Or maybe he's become addicted to something that's destroying him. What if he's wasting his life in trivial pursuits and is not growing into that wonderful potential I see in him? What if others are abusing him and using him? Or worse, what if he's become one of the users and the abusers? What if he's in trouble or he's alone and he's missing home and he he just thinks I can't go home again. I can't go back because of all the things I've done. And as these thoughts settle deeply into the heart of the Father, he makes a decision. He can stand the separation no longer, and so he too goes out the front door, though he leaves it open, and he goes down the steps and down the hill and all the way to the main road and into the great city of Madrid. He finds a, the office headquarters of El Liberal, the most popular, widely read newspaper of Madrid, and he, he goes into the office and he, 
He takes out an ad in the personal and the classified section of the newspaper, hoping his son might see this, and the ad simply reads like this, Paco, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven. Signed, Papa. If this story sounds at all familiar to you, it probably should. It echoes not only the theme of that great parable Jesus told of the prodigal son and the loving father, the waiting father, but it echoes, I think, also in a deep sense, the much larger story in which Easter is set and in which you and I are actually living our lives day in and and day out. The Bible teaches that in the beginning, human beings, the earliest ones, enjoyed an intimate relationship with their father. They, They lived in a tight relationship of care and concern, and it was out of this particular bond that flowed so much of the goodness of life upon which they depended and in which they exulted. Man and woman were able to walk naked and unashamed in this life. They, they had nothing to, to hide from each other. They were without anger or anxiety or fears of any kind, simply open to each other, serving each other as, as helpmates. Human beings had care of the creation that God had given them. They saw its goodness and wanted to preserve it with everything they could. They worked the garden with joy. They they continued in this manner, and the great creation itself gave back to them, providing them with all of the abundance they could possibly desire. And life in this household, in the Father's household, was not just okay. It was not just fine. It was, in the words of Genesis 131, very good. God looked at it all, and it was very good. And then, as the story goes, like the story of Paco, perhaps, humanity began to question these arrangements. The thought arises that maybe life could get even better if things were rearranged. It would be even better if men and women could take for themselves the right to define what was good and what was evil. And so they, they turned away from their father, these first human beings. They, they reached out and took what they wanted, and then they ran, and then they hid in an effort to escape the anticipated consequences, in order to escape the inevitable encounter with their father. And in that encounter, which eventually came over what had happened, humanity finally left home altogether and went off to live life on its own terms. All of the dizzying complexities and the struggles that define life in our modern-day Madrid, in, in a way, are the outworking of that original separation between parent and child. 
We now have our secular city to ourselves. We have the vast variety of entertainments, the huge selection of bondages that we call freedoms. And like Paco, we grew up too fast. We took on powers and capacities for which we lacked the moral judgment or the spiritual maturity to handle them very well. In one of his messages, Frederick Beekner recounts a story that makes this point uh, poignantly and well. It is a story of a boy of about 12 or 13 years of age who in a fit of crazy anger and depression, writes Beekner, got a hold of a gun somewhere and fired it at his father who died, not right away, but soon thereafter. When the authorities asked the boy why he had done it, he said that it was because he could not stand his father. His father always was demanding too much of him. He was always after him because he hated his father. And then, later on, after he had been placed in a house of detention, a guard was walking down the corridor late one night when he heard sounds from the boy's room, and he stopped at the doorway to listen surreptitiously, and the word that he heard the boys sobbing out in the dark were, I want my father. I want my dad. All of the anxieties, all of the angers, all of the fears and the griefs that still fill our souls and the daily news and so much of our families and schools and our workplaces and our politics today just keep reminding us that something is not quite right. Something is missing at the core of all of us, of every human being, something that has the name Father, our Father attached to it. And like the Father in Paco's tale, God hears the sobbing. God hears the longing of the soul that we may not even put words to ourselves. And even though we may have forgotten or hated or pushed or dis, he has never stopped, ever stopped, longing for reunion. And so like the father in that story from Spain The father resolves he will do something about the separation. First, he sends messengers of various kinds, the scriptures say. He sends prophets and priests and kings to call humanity back to himself. And when this is still not sufficient to really turn humanity's heart towards home, God comes himself down the hill to enter into the the very city of humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The divine word that brought all of life into being, the divine word that holds everything together, every molecule and subatomic particle that you are and that I am, that divine word declassified himself, reduced the font size 
and became a personal ad in the newsprint of history. And to everyone who had the ears to hear, to everyone who had the eyes to see, Jesus went about displaying the heart of God to a lost humanity in parables about lost sheep and lost coins and lost kids in banquets for outcasts and for betrayers in acts of amazing grace and in miracles of healing, Jesus became the largest display ad for the outreaching heart of our Heavenly Father that this world will ever get to see. And the message in that ad was so consistent and was so simple that even a child should be able to read it and the message was simply this. My precious sons and daughters, meet me again. Meet me again today. Open your heart to me and all shall be forgiven. It's a phenomenal message. It's an extraordinary invitation. It's a wonderful hope. But as good and beautiful as it sounds, by the time we meet them on this Easter morning, it must have been very hard for those disciples, those first ones, to really believe it, to believe this was possible. It was so much harder still as they had seen Jesus arrested. They'd watched him flayed strips of meat off of his back. They'd seen him imprisoned and tortured and tried and then crucified on a criminal's cross. And to them in the dark of that early morning, as they remembered the sight of that great stone that had been rolled over the tomb, a stone as as huge and heavy in a sense as the weight of human history and all of our sins, as it was rolled across the opening, how could they continue to believe in the heart of God and the triumph of his grace? How? How? And then Easter came. And the disciples saw the stone had been rolled back. And they heard the message of the angel. And they went in and they saw that the body was gone and where it had laid, where they had put it themselves, they'd seen it laying. There was nothing but a set of grave clothes that looked like a chrysalis of a butterfly who'd broken free and taken wing. And they went on to meet Jesus. They met him in the flesh. Hundreds of them met him in the flesh in encounters so absolutely convincing that they would go to their graves themselves. They would be crucified, torn apart by wild animals rather than deny the reality that Jesus Christ had risen. And suddenly those disciples just knew at a level they had never known before 
Before it had been just faith. Now it was knowledge. That everything that Jesus had ever said to them about the heart of God, everything he'd ever said to them about the power of God's grace in a human life was just as he had told them, as the angel puts it. And the implications for them, they lived on the rest of their lives. And the implications for you and me, we can live on if we'll take them to heart. One of those implications, one of those results of the resurrection of Jesus is that you can believe with certainty that what he said about the Father in you is also true. You can know God as your loving Father. Now, most of the other religions of this world have a very different understanding of God. I mean, we use the G word, right? But we are thinking of a very different entity. Some of the religions of this world picture God as some kind of distant creator. He maybe brought it all together, let it go bang, and now it's sort of winding its way down like a, a watch that's been left on a table. Some see him this way. Others, they see him as a capricious tyrant. I mean, like one of those Greek or Roman gods that could sort of lose his temper and seem to have all these kind of adolescent petulances and, and might at any moment look down at you and go, never really liked you in the first place. Some of the religions and philosophies picture God as this diffuse force. Use the force, Luke, you know? <laughs> right? Sort of like an energy source, but, but this is not the God that Jesus tells us about. The God that Jesus introduces us to is, is, is so much more compassionate. He's so much closer He's he's so much more concrete than any of, of these understandings. God, says Jesus, is actually your papa. He uses the word Abba, Aramaic. It meant papa. God is is the epitome of what an earthly dad should be, that each earthly dad strives to be. He's He's incapable of being manipulated, however. He's incapable of being fooled. And yet he is always deeply concerned, consistent and wise in all of his ways towards his children. He's intimately interested in his kids. Jesus said that you can have a relationship with this God. You don't need to just know about him. You can know him in a personal way. You can have the kind of intimate, prayerful conversation with him, the kind of raw, real interaction with him that Jesus models for us. You can tell him the truth when you're scared. You can express your anger when you just don't understand. You can whisper to him your secrets. You can open your heart to him. 
You can do this moment by moment, day by day. You, you can meet this father of yours not just uh, at Christmas and Easter, not just on the Sabbath day, not just in a religious building or with the help of some priest or robed pastor. You can do this every day. You can do this everywhere. And your father in heaven can become your moment-by-moment strength, your daily guiding voice, just like, just like he was for Jesus. Jesus tells us you can know God as your loving father. And he also tells us that the heart of God opens up all kinds of new possibilities for you and me. No matter what your history has been up to this point, no matter what baggage you brought into the place, no matter who or where you are and what you've done, you can make a new start in your relationship with God. You can make a new start in your relationship with yourself or your relationship with the other key people in your life. Even if your, your list of dids and didn'ts is long and is very ugly. Even if the people nearest to you know about the list and they think you could never change. Even if you've wandered far from God and you've got all kinds of doubts and questions and uncertainties, you can still come home to the Father. You could be a greedy businessman like Zacchaeus. And you can come home. You you could be a serial adulteress like the woman of the well of Sychar in John's gospel. You could be a hardened criminal like the thief on the cross. You could be a pinch-faced, self-righteous Pharisee like Nicodemus. But if you will humble yourself, if you will turn away from the life that's been and toward Jesus and the life that can be, then you can have your slate wiped clean, rebooted. You can be born again. And your father, your father will help you find new purpose in life. He will supply you with new power for living. He will lead you to the more abundant life. But I think that the final, final implication of Christ's return from the grave is also worth thinking about. Because his resurrection proves that there is a place you belong and a people you belong with that you may not have discovered yet. And to get at this final truth, I want to just close out the story with which I began today, if you'll permit me to. It was just before noon on that Tuesday, and Paco's father had finally reached the center of Madrid. And as he's going up the street towards the Hotel Montana, he notices there's, there's, some kind of, there's some kind of ruckus ahead. 
I mean, there's all these people, and he, he gets closer, and he notices that the, that the, the Guardia, the Madrid police, are out in force. There are a whole lot of them, and they're trying to break up this huge crowd that's massing around the entrance to, to the Hotel Montana, and, they're all, and there's, there's all these young people. They're trying seemingly to force to find their way in, and as he's looking at everybody and scanning, the, he sees a tousled head that's unmistakable, and he raises his hand, and he cries out, Paco! And the head turns, and he sees his boy's face. And they lock eyes. And the face of the boy fills with hope. And at that precise moment, the heads of 800 other men turn to face the father too. Because they're all named Paco. They've all seen the ad. They've all come to the Hotel Montana, desperately hoping that it might really be possible that all is forgiven. Welcome to the Hotel Montana. This is the crowd you've walked into today. Don't be fooled by the clothing. All right? The fine furnishings. This is not a club for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. And I am one of its long-term patients. If you hang around here at all, you know about my various pathologies and maladies, right? We are not a perfect people. We are a forgiven people. We are a people who desperately know of our need of God's grace. <laughs> and we've got histories. And, and we're just seeking him week in and week out to find his his gracious power, so we just don't keep repeating the same old things again and again and again. We're grateful to be forgiven, and we keep asking God's strength to forgive the other people round about us, because they need forgiving too. And the message I want to give to you this morning is that you can join us. <laughs> you can join this family of forgiven forgivers. The doors of the house are open. They're open every single week. The only admission requirement is that you come acknowledging your need and that you keep showing some grace towards the other Pacos here because all of us need it. As that forgiven forgiver the Apostle Peter once wrote, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For the message of Easter is, Jesus has shown us 
the true heart of God. Jesus has revealed to us his real power for raising his children up to new life. So here's what I want to say. Welcome home. Welcome home, Paco. For all is forgiven.